Stay hungry, stay foolish. From 1990 to 1995, our guest conducted DEA-approved clinical research at the University of New Mexico in which he injected 60 volunteers with DMT, one of the world's most powerful psychedelics known. His detailed account of those sessions is an extraordinarily riveting inquiry into the nature of the human mind and the therapeutic potential of psychedelics. DMT, a plant-derived chemical that is also manufactured by the human brain, consistently produced near-death and mystical experiences. Many volunteers reported convincing encounters with intelligent non-human presences. Nearly all felt that the sessions were among the most profound experiences of their lives. Our guest's research connects DMT with the pineal gland, considered by Hindus to be the site of the seventh chakra and by René Descartes to be the seat of the soul. His book, DMT, The Spirit Molecule, makes the bold case that DMT, naturally released by the pineal gland, f facilitates the soul's movement in and out of the body as an integral part of the birth and death experiences, as well as the highest states of meditation and even sexual transcendence. Our guest also believes that alien abduction experiences are brought on by accidental releases of DMT. If used wisely, DMT could trigger a period of remarkable progress in the scientific exploration of the most mystical regions of the human mind and soul. We welcome Clinical Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the University of New Mexico School of Medicine and author of DMT, The Spirit Molecule, Dr. Rick Strassman. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Aidan, for having me. To the listener, you may wonder why we're doing a show on psychedelics. This show has a burning desire to explore human potential and I believe and hope you do also that we should at least engage in a discussion about psychedelics. This is never opinion or confirmation. It is about new information to enable us to make new and informed decisions. So I'd ask you to suspend any previous notions about psychedelics and the social programming we have all received about them. Also, I'd like you to consider that Rick has struggled himself with this, being a logical expert, a researcher, a scientist, and this was challenging his own worldview. Psychedelics have been proven to enhance our creative potential and even display therapeutic and life-changing experiences for many. Rick, as the world's leading expert on DMT, what is behind your own continued drive to enlarge the discussion of psychedelics? That's a big question. I guess it ties into what motivated me to do the research in the first place. In the beginning, I suppose, it was uh, an interest in explaining the biological bases of spiritual experience. And then it moved into establishing the objective reality of the spiritual universe, the spiritual worlds. More recently, over the last several years, it's been to use the effects of psychedelics to better characterize the human mind and its relationship to the spiritual world. I'd love to explore a little bit of the context in which you explored all this, Rick, because you really are a pioneer in this, and the pioneers take the arrows. And you tell us in the book that you believe that medical students and psychiatric trainees learn so little about psychedelic drugs, not because research ended, but because of how it ended. Psychedelic research was a bruising and humiliating chapter in the lives of many of its most prominent scientists, 
These were the best and brightest psychiatrists of their generation, yet they were often ostracized, vilified, and you went through this a certain amount yourself with the amount of bureaucracy you had to overcome to get these studies through in the 90s. The bureaucracy was, by and large, just an immovable object rather than a, a source of judgment or or you know criticism for my interest in doing this research. The psychedelics were all placed into the most restrictive legal category in the U.S. in uh, 1970, and I began my application process in 1988. So in a lot of ways, it was a new generation of bureaucrats, and the furor over the abuse and problems that resulted from the first wave of widespread use of these you know, drugs significantly died down. So the you know, main problem I encountered was just establishing some kind of regulatory system where FDA and the DEA would communicate with each other and expedite the approval of um, such a study. So it was more the case, very slow grinding of the regulatory wheels than any outright hostility, at least by the time I began the DMT application. And let's talk a little bit about, Rick, about the backdrop of when you started. So I mentioned there about how it ended, how the psychedelic research ended. It was not the best foundation for you to start this research. Yeah, because of the way that the first wave of human research ended. Um, anybody that was interested in uh, making a career in psychiatric research would not decide to study psychedelic drugs. Before the DMT study, actually, I applied to do an MDMA study. This was 1985, 1986. And I used you know, many of the same reasons for studying MDMA as I ended up using for the DMT project. But the people at FDA were pretty hostile, and you know, thankfully, you know, that you know, fellow retired uh, you know, before I you know, turned in my protocol for studying DMT. And a uh, new division at FDA had been established to speed the approval of new treatments for HIV. That was a more streamlined part of FDA, so my DMT application even sidestepped the original division that looked at my MDA protocol. Yeah, you know, I would get, you know, comments from the first FDA individual that uh, when I suggested that to, you know, bypass the issue of MDMA neurotoxicity that we could study the terminally ill, which is a bit, you know, morbid, but still, there is precedent. You can study extremely toxic you know, chemotherapy agents you know, for cancer in you know, cancer patients you know, because their life expectancy is rather poor anyway. But in this case, when suggesting studying a Schedule One drug, MDMA, I was told, well, the terminally ill have rights too. But, uh, I mean, clearly, you know, the terminally ill you know, can give informed consent. So it was an emotional response. I love this about you, that you kept going, you kept fighting away, you kept finding a way. Because the other thing that the backdrop in, in which you did this, you did this totally against the grain as any innovator would. The media at the time exaggerated and emphasized psychedelic drugs, negative physical and psychological effects. And some of those reports resulted from poor research and others were simply fabricated. Great to share a little bit of the backdrop and the history of the studies of psychedelics and psychotherapy. Yeah, these 
compounds were studied in earnest uh, from the mid-1950s on, and they stayed within the confines of the research ivory tower. The drug that was studied you know, most was LSD, although there were a small number of DMT studies and an even smaller number of you know, psilocybin studies. So as long as studies took place in the laboratory, research was marching on. They were finding the people or the conditions for which psychedelics might be helpful. Heroin addiction, alcoholism, depression, sociopathy, even even childhood autism. But then studies were occurring at Harvard with you know, Tim Leary and his team. And Tim got religion, as it were, and started to preach the gospel of psychedelic consciousness, like some kind of mystical religion. So this unleashed a huge interest on the part of youth who began to unknown you know, doses of LSD in you know, less than ideal circumstances. People that shouldn't be taking psychedelics in the first place, either because of a current mental problem or a past one or you know, family history or something. The emergency room visits increased, suicides occurred, all kinds of things began making the headlines. At the same time, there were attempts to prove the biological toxicity of LSD. Those were the poor studies that you're referring to and the ones which were overblown. And studies which refuted those findings never saw the light of day. So there was a concerted effort, like the Red Scare, um, it was the LSD scare, and things came to a head with some congressional hearings and the scheduling of the drugs. This reminded me, I spoke a few weeks back to Stephen Kotler. He says, well, hi, by the way, he's a lot of time for you. And he emphasized, okay, great. he emphasized the importance of language when it comes to innovation. So how we prime the mind towards a new introduction. And you also say this, I found this interesting in the book, that what we call a drug, what we call a drug we take or give influences our expectations of what that drug will do, almost like a placebo in, in a way. And it also modifies the effects themselves. You give an example of adrenaline study here. I'd love if we shared that, just show how priming somebody towards it can influence the effects it has on them. Yeah, well, that was an old study from the late 40s, I think. People were given stimulants like amphetamine and uh, were told it was a tranquilizer, barbiturate. So in response to being given an amphetamine, they, through the questionnaires, gauging their state of mind as relaxed, tranquil and calm and peaceful, <laughs> the same volunteers later were given a barbiturate, which is you know, tranquilizing, and were told that they were given a stimulant, like being given amphetamine. Yeah, and uh, in response to the tranquilizer, they responded as if they were BD, hyper, alert, awake, stimulated. So what you tell people are going to be the effects of the drug, and even uh, you know what you call them. There's still some debate, some discussion within the large psychedelic community, as well as other research in the community regarding what to call these drugs. Are they psychedelics or entheogens or psychotomimetics, you know, mimicking, you know, mimicking psychosis? Yeah, and if you're given an entheogen, like to stimulate the divine within, or if you're given a psychedelic, which is mind-disclosing or mind manifesting, or if you're given a psychotomimetic, which is going to make you crazy, your expectations and 
your interpretations of what's going on will vary wildly. Mm. And you mentioned earlier on the Leary times and how people took psychedelics in the wrong setting and in the wrong set. I'd love to share that part because this is really important and you emphasize this and you took unbelievable care to make sure that the setting and the set was really important. So you talk about how psychedelics exert their effects by a complex blending of three factors, set, setting, and drug. I think it's really important to share this. Yeah, I think it cuts you know both ways. Um, it's a good explanatory model for the ultimate outcome of any experience with psychedelics. Who the person is, what his state is, their um, health, their psychological condition. That's called a set. Their expectations, you know, their beliefs, their goals, both overall and for the experience itself. The other important aspect is the setting, which is the environment, including the state of mind of those around whom you're going to be taking the drug and the you know, people giving it to you. So then there's the drug. You could look at it as a, a non-specific amplifier, but a very you know, powerful one which then begins to work on the set and the setting and you know, mediates or influences the acute effect and one response to it. If you, want to, if you want to experience a spiritual type of effect, then you would employ volunteers that were interested in that result too. And you would educate them as to what the experience was going to be like the importance and of the value of spiritual experiences. And in the supervision of the acute effects of the drug, you would steer people in that direction. You would choose your playlist of music to steer things in that direction. And in the integration stage, the next few hours after the effects have worn off and the next few days after that, you interpret things through the lens of the spiritual experience. If you want to turn out a group of you know, serial killers, look at the you know, model of you know, Charles Manson. The individuals who took LSD with him were you know, marginally employed, you know, marginal characters, you know, violent history. They felt you know, ripped off. They were violent. You educate them in the importance of Helter Skelter, which is this you know, really crazy race war kind of apocalyptic scenario. And, you know, when you're on the LSD, you steer uh, the effects into the, well, the helter-skelter model. And in the integration experience or, you know, the integration uh, you know, phase, you interpret and steer the results into that kind of model as well. And, you know, people believe, you know, they've experienced the truth of either of the models. You know, they're convinced it's true and right. Uh, they're even more committed to it than they were before. You can take your pick regarding which outcome. You know, within our study, though, it was an unusual confluence of historical, you know, cultural, educational kind of circumstances. It had been 20 years, you know, more or less, that any human studies with these compounds had taken place. Even though one of our Screening criteria for participation in the study was, you know, previous experience with these drugs. They just weren't in the news. They weren't being touted as either good or bad. They were just being you know, taken quietly, mostly under the radar. 
So the expectations were primarily to participate, to explore, to advance uh, the field, to get research off the ground again. So they weren't, you know, really coming in, you know, for therapy. They weren't, you know, coming in for a spiritual experience. They weren't, you know, coming in, you know, to uh, understand Helter Skelter any better. Uh, uh, you know, they were pioneers, explorers. With respect to the setting, the kind of expectations that I built, the, the experiences I was, you know, hoping for people to have, preparing them accordingly, we just told them three things. The first is it comes on extremely quickly and is over very fast. The other is that it's very common to experience what appears to be a separation of the body and the mind. And number three is, you know, as a result thereof, you might be afraid that you've died. So, first of all, you know, nobody has ever died from DMT. And second of all, if you encounter any medical sorts of problems, we can respond immediately. So then I gave some advice, you know, not really uh, coaching them for any kind of experience. I suppose I was, you know, hoping to allay anxiety by instructing them that after they flash on the separation of their mind and body, they could either panic and fight it, or they could say to themselves, oh, very interesting, let's keep aware and alert and respond as indicated. So I was keen on them exploring, keeping their wits about them. It was safe. There was me and a nurse in the room that could attend to any problems that they had. And they should just go for it. Just look very carefully, try to remember as much as they could. And once they came down in 15 or 20 minutes to uh, start describing what had just you know, taken place, it was just a bare-bones model. With the effects of the high doses, you know, people couldn't interact that much at the peak experience. So um, it was internal. They had some black eye shades on in order to turn the experience into one that was totally internal. If somebody got cold, we covered them with a blanket. If they extended their hand, we took it. But other than that, they were on their own. That was the expectation. That comes across, Rick, the, the great care you took of the volunteers. And you reminded me of a really hotshot lawyer selecting his jury beforehand because you took <laughs> great care, great care selecting right. those people to make sure they had been experienced their motivations was right, all that type of thing really came across, which is admirable as well. I just wanted to jump to one thing, because we didn't say this at the start, and I didn't say for the reason, because you mentioned the word internal there, and it's incredible that our bodies create DMT, nature creates DMT, it's present in lots of plants and, and nature in general. Many of us may know it from the active ingredient in ayahuasca and the ayahuasca experiences, but it'd be great to get from you, the pioneer of this. What is DMT? DMT stands for dimethyltryptamine, chemical cousin of melatonin and of serotonin. It occurs widely spread in the plant kingdom, you know, thousands of plants most likely. You mentioned ayahuasca, where DMT is responsible for the visionary effects of ayahuasca. It was first found in psychedelic plants from South America in uh, the late 1940s. It was discovered to be psychedelic, extracted and you know, synthesized, you know, pure DMT, around 10 years later. 
And then about 10 years after that, it was discovered in body fluids and tissues of rabbits and other rodents. Then a few years after that, it was similarly discovered in the body fluids of humans, urine, blood, and spinal fluid. So that was its main claim to fame at the time, was DMT responsible for abnormal mental states in psychiatric patients, especially schizophrenia. There were studies that were interested in comparing levels of DMT in individuals with psychosis as compared to normals. They were developing anti-DMT drugs to see if they would be useful for schizophrenia. I think they were even developing an antibody, you know, like a vaccine against DMT. When they're giving DMT, it was mostly to mimic schizophrenia to determine the degree of you know, similarity between the DMT state and uh, the psychotic state. You know, obviously, that's you know, kind of a planted approach, but still, time marches on, you know, research you know, was advancing. Nobody was putting two and two together and, you know, thinking about, oh, you know, DMT also, if it is you know, playing a role in consciousness, it could be playing a similar role in desirable, exalted states of consciousness like mystical experience and spiritual states. The uh, research was advancing in a you know, different direction at the time. This is one of the things I love about your work, Rick, is your deep connections. Like Steve Jobs said, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You only can connect them looking back. For example, you studied deeply Buddhism, you studied deeply near-death experiences, alien encounters, and then you connected dots between many, many different realms. And we'll get into that in a little while. But before we do, I'd love to focus a little bit on the pineal gland and melatonin because you did a massive amount of research before you launched into the DMT studies. And you call the pineal gland the spirit gland. As mentioned in today's show, in the in an intro, Descartes believed the pineal gland was the seat of the soul. It'd be great to share your findings on the pineal gland. Well, I started my career as a clinical researcher looking at melatonin. And that's because in the early 1980s, there wasn't very much you know, that was known about it. And the small amount that was known about it when it was given to humans is the possibility that it was quite psychedelic. So as you mentioned, I was interested in the pineal gland because of its you know, long esteemed history as a spiritual gland, a spiritual organ, both in the West and in the East, Buddhism, Hinduism, even the Kabbalah. You know, the location of the pineal gland is the location of the and most sought-after spiritual states. Melatonin is psychedelic. Melatonin is made in the pineal gland. I thought, well, you know, bingo, there is a biological organ, a biological chemical, which could be responsible or is responsible for mediating certain characteristics of non-drug spiritual states. And, you know, that could even include dreams, which is a psychedelic experience every night that everybody has. That piece was really interesting because you mentioned this in the book that one thing on melatonin is that at 3 a.m. we have a drop in temperature and a spike in melatonin and perhaps it's when we get into that deep dream state as well. Yeah, you know, there is interest in relating melatonin to dreams. We learn you know, more and more about DMT. I think there's going to be increasing interest in relating DMT to the dream state. Like, for example, is 
they're more DMT in the brain when their humans or animals are in REM sleep. Just a few weeks ago, there was an article published in one of the Nature Journals, which is called Scientific Reports, which demonstrated increases in brain concentrations of DMT in the dying rodent. So that is confirmation of at least one naturally occurring altered state, the near-death state, which is associated with elevated levels of DMT in the brain. When I saw that, I thought of you, and it was validation of your hypothesis over such a long time, because it brings to mind this one. You talked about this 49 days synchronicity. I love this. The pineal gland could act as an antenna or a lightning rod for the soul. I'd love to share this, because this is down to your understanding of various fields of expertise. Keep in mind that I wrote that about 20 years ago. So I suppose on you know one hand, I may not have been quite as hyperbolic and not made that suggestion with you know, quite the same flourish. But be that as it may, the background for that claim was my study of both embryology as a medical student and my study of Tibetan Buddhism as a medical student as well. I was able to spend a summer with a Tibetan monk who was teaching a course on Tibetan Buddhism to mental health professionals. You know, so I got to spend uh, on a couple you know, months learning about the Tibetan Buddhist lineage tradition, you know, their beliefs, their practices. And one of the striking notions that is included in the Buddhist teaching is the rebirth of a human soul 49 days after death. It wanders around in the bardos for seven weeks and then for any number of reasons decides upon one couple to appear as their next child. So that was an interesting idea, interesting model. It's been, you know, worked out in extreme accuracy, extreme detail, you know, by the Tibetans in particular. At the same time, I was learning about the pineal gland development, its first appearance in the human fetus, you know, which also occurs at 49 days. And I thought, oh, isn't that interesting? So then as another piece of information that we learned in embryology, is that the differentiation of the gonads into either male or into female occurs at 49 days as well. I came up with a kind of you know, wild-eyed synthesis of all three of those findings, even four, I guess, when it came you know, to DMT occurring in the pineal, is that the individuation of the person occurs through pineal release of you know, DMT, and the pineal gland is only seen at 49 days, and it isn't able to make DMT until then. And the you know, settling in of you know, the new soul into the body and uh, the you know, separation into you know, male or into female, which is the most you know, fundamental differentiation within mammals. And if you also include the ostensible conflict or you know, friction or polarity between spirituality and sexuality, uh, it, you know, fits into place, too, uh, with respect, you know, to the pineals being a spiritual organ, it appears in opposition, you know, to the gonads, and uh, you kind of take it from there. Yeah, I love that, that it's validation of, of your guesses or your connection of dots, and it must feel great to see that about the rodents in, in, at death, there's a spike in DMT. What I found fascinating was, and this is the way 
bear with my simplicity of how I synthesized information myself, but you talked about the brain, and the brain is usually like an unbelievable bouncer in a nightclub, but doesn't allow any chemicals in except when it sees DMT coming, it's like straight up here to the VIP table. <laughs> we have a bottle of champagne for you, DMT. It's really welcomed by the brain, and it uses it up really, really quickly. Yeah, um, there's only a small number of compounds that the brain actively transports into its confines through the blood-brain barrier, and uh, some of them include things like blood sugar for metabolism, certain amino acids the brain can't make on its own for protein synthesis. DMT is another one of those compounds. So it's as if a certain amount of the compound of DMT is uh, required for normal brain function, which then starts to beg the question, is normal consciousness, which is normal brain function, um, is you know normal consciousness influenced you know, somehow by DMT? There's a lot of DMT made in the lungs, but the transport question has always been an important one. With the discovery of DMT in the brain in the same kind of levels as takes place with other neurotransmitters like serotonin, um, you can start to then speculate about DMT being in a way some kind of neurotransmitter responsible for a certain segment of everyday consciousness and perhaps in unusual states of consciousness too. And speaking of those unusual states of consciousness, you mentioned this, and you mentioned about the rodents, and and I emphasize that for a reason. At death, there's a spike in DMT. Also, you mentioned the 49 days. And then also throughout the book, you mention throughout life, in periods of high stress, for example, I'm in a car accident, I may have a near-death experience, I may have an accidental leakage, let me call it a leakage of DMT, and that may be a manifestation of an alien encounter. It'd be great to share them before we look inside the experiences that the volunteers had themselves, starting perhaps with near-death experience and the extraordinary similarity between the accounts explained by John Mack and your own experiences of the volunteers, their accounts of their experiences while they were under the influence. Yeah, um, well, there's a couple of, points in your question. You know, one is the relationship between stress and increases of DMT. There were some older animal studies, some older human studies in schizophrenics, which indicated that levels of DMT increase at stress or in conditions of stress. But those were old studies and their means of measuring DMT may not have been quite as accurate as they could have been. So I would refer to those as promising or interesting data, you know, preliminary data, but you know, not especially field in stone. Yeah, you know, so if it's the case that levels of DMT increase with stress, and there is confirmation in uh, the dying study, because, you know, what is more stressful than death? So it could be that other conditions of stress, like an accident, let's say, like a heart attack, even your know, mental stress, like a you know relationship, and you've lost a spouse or a parent, child. Theoretically, those could increase concentrations of DMT in the body and the brain. There are some old and more current data uh, which point to electromagnetic fields as, as influencing pineal function melatonin production. So, if the pineal turns out um, as well to be a significant source of endogenous DMT 
it could be that if you're around your high tension wires even, that may stimulate sensitive pineal or even brain to produce more DMT. You know, so if uh, you look at the encounter experience, the experience of encountering aliens and whatnot, you know, oftentimes um, if you read John Mack's work, those kinds of experiences occur in conditions of great stress, early in the morning, 3 a.m. even, under high-tension wires or other geomagnetic anomalous kinds of locations on Earth. One of the quite straightforward studies with respect to this question would be to give DMT to an abductee and you know, to ask them to compare their experiences because one of the hallmarks of the full DMT effect is encounters with beings, with powerful, sentient creatures. So it would be an extremely easy experiment to do. You'd have to go through the hoops, but that nowadays is you know, quite a bit easier. And it would either confirm or refute or you know, suggest you know, further studies to nail down the UFO abduction DMT story. This is why we need to talk about this. We need to bring this out to the fore, because if somebody is experiencing that, imagine how lonely they feel, uh, how much they must doubt their sanity or are so convinced that what they experienced was real that they just feel totally isolated from those around them. And then people with schizophrenia, because if, again, maybe, as you suggest in the book, perhaps people with schizophrenia have different sensitivities to DMT, and this could be a link or a suggestion or a hint towards how we can start curing people or influencing them with psychosis and schizophrenia. Yeah, and, uh, you know, speaking of schizophrenics, even, you know, the idea of DMT is appealing to them, and it could be included in the way they understand their illness. Most schizophrenics experience their visions and their voices as originating externally from some spiritual sort of world, um, and as some you know, kind of interdimensional bleed-through, as it were, you know, so if you include in your discussion with patients like that, that antipsychotic medications may strengthen that barrier between the invisible world and their mind, you might be able to find such schizophrenic patients more willing to take medication as opposed to explaining it as a brain disease or overproduction of dopamine. That isn't especially a strong argument for most patients like that. So let's jump to the accounts. And, and the last thing to say as well is the creativity. And this is well known that psychedelics aid creativity. And there's been many, many studies on that over the years. But let's jump to the accounts of the volunteers. When I tell people about you, and I've been telling them about your, your work for quite some time, I would say, you know, you've got to check out this guy, Rick Strassman. He did these tests in the 90s. And what was strikingly amazing was the similarity in what people described they all went to the same place pretty much they all described the same things they all described the same characters which is highly unusual and it'd be great to share a little bit about this maybe starting with how the journeys or how the the experiences all began with respect to the experience resulting from giving dmt it's quite stereotypic. It's reproducible. Descriptions are common across pretty much everyone. We gave it intravenously. When you use DMT 
recreationally on the street, you know, so to speak, you vaporize the crystals and inhale the vapor. If we were going to propose that, it would have made the study even more complicated because you start coughing, you're too stoned to continue taking puffs, unknown lung damage, those kinds of things. You know, so we decided, you know, to inject the liquid form. You know, we dissolved it. And most of the old studies gave it into a muscle. There was one study where it was given intravenously. So we began with one volunteer that had smoked DMT before. We gave it as an injection into the shoulder muscle. But he described the onset as slower than the smoke, and the peak wasn't as intense. And because we were being funded by the National Institute of Drug Abuse, we needed to replicate the effect on the street. Then we switched to the IV means of giving it. If you give a fully psychedelic dose of DMT intravenously, it begins within a few heartbeats. You feel an inner tension and feeling of acceleration, what everybody called the rush like you're, you're skydiving or you know, roller coaster, you know, drop, butterflies in the stomach, you know, times a million. So then your, you know, visual field begins to pixelate with eyes open or eyes closed. There's a display of kaleidoscopic colors and patterns. And then you peak at around one minute, two minute point where your body seems to drop off and you become only an awareness of entering into a world of light which is more intensely colored and heavily saturated than anything that you've seen before. The shapes are morphing, buzzing, transforming themselves. If you've gotten through the rush by letting go of the anxiety and the feeling of strangeness, which over, can overpower you, you know, then things open up. It's you know, generally quiet, but at the same time, it's filled with an auditory kind of presence, as if it's if a large bell was struck, and you're hearing the after effects of that bell being rung. So the you know shapes then frequently will morph into a discreetly recognizable object, and you know we ended up calling those things the beings rather than the aliens or the entities or the angels or whatnot. Beings was the most neutral term we could come up with. And the hallmark of the beings was the relationship which existed between it or them and the volunteer. They were aware of each other, usually, uh, if not explicitly, then felt. There was you know, communication between the being or the beings and the volunteer, Things, you know, done to the volunteer, you know, harming or helping or informing, instructing, showing the future. Yeah, yeah, you know, so communication could have been better for a couple of reasons. You know, one is the sense of shock of encountering the beings and their nature in the first place. The other was a language problem. It was as if the beings and the volunteer didn't quite share the same language. So by the time the volunteer got their footing, the experience was beginning to fade. But, you know, nevertheless, the lion's you know, share, the money was on those first two to you know, five minutes or so, the download of information, 
the display of the visual and emotional panorama. And then you know, soon thereafter, the effects began to fade. People would open up their eyes at around you know, 20 to 30 minutes. And they'd be drinking tea and answering you know, questionnaires you know, 10 minutes after that. And as you said in the book, the brain burns it up really quickly, hence the quick experience, relatively quick. But it feels like for the volunteers that they're there for an eternity. Rick, it's fascinating the experiences people had. I also found it fascinating. I mentioned before about the priming and the language we use around psychedelics and any type of drugs that how it influences the experience. But also I found it fascinating how language fails people when they come back from the experience. They can't quite explain it. They can't quite connect with the entities they meet because this is often what happens in business and innovation. We can't articulate the new idea and it often fails and therefore the innovation is stillborn. And this is what seems to happen back in the 50s with DMT experimentation. Luckily, people like you were pioneers who brought it back to life again. We're going to do a, a show too where we're going to delve more into the entities, the experiences of those entities, and your further work that you went into DMT and the soul of prophecy, where you started to study the Old Testament and started to study some of the visions of the prophets, etc., and how that linked to DMT experience as well. So fascinating stuff ahead. We're going to do that in a few months. But Rick, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Where can people find out you, more about you, your work, your blog, your books, etc.? Well, if somebody wants to look at what's going on with my work, with my writing, any appearances, I have a website, rickstrothman.com, and I also keep current on my Facebook page as well. Clinical Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the University of New Mexico School of Medicine and author of DMT, The Spirit Molecule, and pioneer, Dr. Rick Strassman, thank you for joining us. Thanks very much. It was a pleasure.